Good morning, City Light. My name is Mo. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, and man, uh, if you have a Bible, I hope that you have one. Uh, we're going to get jumping right in right away. Uh, open up to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be in the first six verses. Uh, as we've walked through the book of Hebrews, man, it, my hope is that it's changed how we view Jesus and how we view the gospel, and in that view, that it would cause the gospel to not just be this idea for us, but something that's like permeating through every single aspect of our life, and 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 in showing us what it looks like to be a part of God's unshakable kingdom, this kingdom that's not governed or secured or lived out uh, by the values or systems of earth, but this kingdom has a constant battle against our very nature. That that, that we would be a part of a kingdom that's constantly waging war for our heart as the battlefield, uh, in, in waging war against the values that come from our natural state. And so that's kind of the hope as we're seeing this battle unfold, and we want to see Jesus continue to, to wreck some of those systems that are already built up in us. And so it, it, in chapter 12, what we heard last week, it actually told us what this, like, what, what's the value, what's the attitude when we approach this new unshakable kingdom, when we approach being a part of that kingdom. And here's what it says. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You see, we've been given this beautiful grace to be a part of God's unshakable kingdom. And so this grace ought to propel us to worship our king with a posture of not earning, but a posture of, of worship and a posture of earnest worship is what it should do in our hearts. And so and, and this, this worship is coming out of gratitude and reverence and awe for God. And so in our text this morning, it actually gives some clarity as to what does that look like practically? How do we walk in a, a way that is honoring to God, that, it, that has an attitude of gratefulness in our worship? And so pick it up with me in the first verse of our text in chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. That's it. Uh, the first marker of the kind of worship that we're talking about is love. It says, let love, brotherly love, continue. And so kingdom worship loves selflessly. And the author here assumes that brotherly love would just be a byproduct of the love and worship in Christ, right? So he says, let this kind of love continue. A natural outflow of the gospel isn't a love that is self-focused or self-motivated, but it's actually others-focused and others-motivated. And so to join Jesus means also to join his family and somewhat remove ourselves from our former life and even former family to some extent. Uh, Jesus in Luke 14, 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, just make sure he includes the whole family in that one. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so the word hate there that's mentioned is not actually hate, right? That's not exactly what Jesus means by that. What he means is that our love, our affection should be so big, so massive for Jesus that other loves should pale in comparison only almost to the point where they look like hate, right? So our attachment to everything else, including our own blood family and even our own lives, should seem like hate in comparison for our love for Jesus. And then this love for Jesus that's been given to us and, then, and is pouring out toward him ought to overflow onto the body of Christ. John uh, 13, 35, Jesus says to his disciples and us, it says, the world will know you. Why? By the way that you love one another. You see, our love for each other in the church is, 
is out of the affections for Christ. So it's not just this, I have to love you because, I, because you're a part of this God family, but it's a out of the love of Christ. This should overflow on each other. You see, we're in this thing together. Uh, the world outside of the body of Christ doesn't think like us. They don't value the same things we do. They, they aren't loving the same things. And so we must have a sweet affection for one another because, well, you are us. We are we, you know what I mean? And, and I've heard it said this once, and, and I'm, I'm really close to saying that it's absolutely and utterly true, but here's what the saying goes, how the saying goes. It says, if you don't love the church, then you really don't love Jesus either, right? And, and the sentiment, it's basically saying, man, if you truly love Christ, then love for the church ought to be close by. And it makes sense to me, right? Like the church is called the bride of Christ. So if you come to me and tell me, hey, I love Mo, but you know what? I could kind of care less about Colleen. Well, in that point, I'm like, you're not my friend. I don't like you. And like you, if you've rejected me, I'm rejecting you. That's my girl. We're going to go to battle over that kind of issue. And so there, there is no love affection between you and I at that point if you can't love my girl too. And so in the same way, the call to worship our king for all of followers of Christ is to show love for the body of Christ, to love his bride. And if you haven't noticed, by the way, this is kind of an overflow of love, and so like it's a snowball effect in this love. So Christ loved us, therefore we love Christ, and then that overflows to the body of Christ, and then it doesn't stay there. That love actually overflows to those who are outside of Christ. J.D. Greer says it this way. He's a pastor in um, North Carolina. He says, God is like a spiritual cyclone. He never pulls you in to himself without hurling you back into mission. Uh, Look at verse 2 and 3 to see what this looks like. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to the strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. You see this word hospitality here, it's actually only used, this particular word in the Greek is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used once in the book of Hebrews and once here, but each time that it's used, it's in reference to worshiping God. To be hospitable is to worship God. And so the church in the U.S., historically, we have not done a great job with this. Okay, we we haven't done a great job with that. In fact, our mission has been very insular, inside focused. We look look out for number one rather than the collective. And and we we, we choose sameness and comfort and, and being in our bubble over discomfort and sacrifice for others. You see, we've built up this culture of seeking each other as refuge or seeking uh, the church as a refuge from the world rather than being a refuge for the world. Does that make sense? See, theologian John Stott Stott says this. He says, social responsibility becomes an aspect not of Christian mission only, but also of Christian conversion. So catch this. It is impossible to be truly converted to God without being thereby converted to our neighbor too. See, the responsibility to be hospitable uh, to the strangers in our midst is actually what it means to be a follower of Christ. Like God, God moving in our heart to his glory from just the people in the room, but then also to the people outside the room. See, the gospel isn't made known to our neighbors from our good behavior or some sort of legislation or your Jesus bumper sticker. We display Jesus by the way we love our neighbor as ourselves. See, the mention of the angels in this text, though, is kind of weird, right? Like, you're like, what do you mean, entertaining angels? Uh, but that's not the, really the emphasis of the text. What he's referring to is an Old Testament thing where Abraham actually really did entertain some angels on accident. He didn't know what was going on. Uh, but the whole point of that idea is not necessarily the fact that, hey, you might be entertaining angels, so be hospitable to people. The idea is the magnitude, the impact of what this love, this hospita- hospitality looks like. 
And so Jesus actually outlines the impact of that. He, he outlines it in, in Matthew 25. He, he says that he will divide the sheep from the goat, those who worship God and those who don't worship God. And he tells what that looks like. What does his kingdom people look like in Matthew 25? Here's what it says. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did, I, did, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, Jesus says, as you did to the least of these strangers, prisoners, and mistreated, you did to him. Jesus says the marker of God's kingdom people worshiping him isn't simply marked by Bible reading, church attendance, and singing some song on Sundays, but it's actually ought to be marked out by the overflow of love for those who are, who are mistreated, those who are marginalized and imprisoned. That's what it says. See, we go out of our way to love the stranger, the prisoner, and the mistreated, not because they're more needy than we are, not because they need Jesus more than we do. We go out of our way to love them because we ought to relate to them better than anyone else in society. Catch this. We have been strangers to God, and yet he welcomed us. Uh, we know that we've been imprisoned by our sin, and yet he set us free. We know that we've been marginalized ourselves. We, we marginalize ourselves from God, and yet he still came near to us. Here's the issue. We have a problem relating to suffering because our gospel's too small. Our gospel's far too small because we don't see the suffering that's caused by our sin, both to us and other people. We don't see the devastation of our sin. And so what we actually do is, is, is we don't really want to get well. We'd rather a weak version of the gospel that medicates some of the symptoms but doesn't actually expunge it out of our life. We want to appear as being transformed and never actually letting Jesus take enough root, enough hold in our life to expose that we really don't want to worship, to be, worship him to begin with. See, on Friday, March 15, 2019, an armed white nationalist walked into a mosque and shot and killed 50 people and injured several others in New Zealand. There were people who, like us, were in a place to worship their God and, and their beliefs peacefully, and someone brought hate and violence into that space. Now, for some of us, that, that may not matter about, to us because they don't worship the same God, but here's the catch. They're people. And then when we saw the news, my wife nudged me and said, hey, we got to do something. Like, we, we ought to bring flowers and show our compassion and condolences to these people who are hurting, probably sitting in fear and further marginalized in our own community. So we did it. Me, some staff, and a group of friends went and took flowers to two of the three mosques that we have in town. And, and, and the prayer behind that was, we don't have any kind of agenda behind it. We only wanted to display the love of Christ and just maybe, maybe gain some new friends. And man, God showed up. He showed up mightily, especially for me, he showed up. He, 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 the first thing he did, he, he broke my heart for people who are different than me and believe differently than me. 
Like, yes, they believe very differently, but they have the image of God, which means they have innate value and worth because God has put his imprint on them. And I I got to love them with little effort. Two, he humbled me. He humbled me through their actions because they displayed this very command that we're looking at that says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because here's the deal. I was hungry and they fed me. I was thirsty that night, and they gave me drink. I was a stranger to them, and they welcomed me in. These people have never worshipped the true king. They have never experienced the mercy and the grace that we have for our sins. They haven't experienced it, and yet they showed hospitality better than I've seen church people do. So maybe, just maybe, I would love for our people to be a people that, are, that would love in this way. That would love in such a way that, that we would display God's glory in that way. Maybe it doesn't mean going to a mosque, but it does mean being uncomfortable. Our response to Jesus' grace and loving worship toward others should be uncomfortable, and it should be inconvenient. See, like we should work hard, strive, and toil toward love for others. But we do this not to earn God's grace, by the way. Let me remind you, it's not to earn God's grace. It's out of God's grace that we do these things. Because the gospel, because of the gospel in our hearts, in our life, we are so motivated, not by the guilt that we might feel at this moment even, but by the gratitude that we have experienced the king. We have experienced that mercy and that grace over our sins. See, the gospel is the greatest motivating power in the entire world, and it ought to propel us to love our neighbor, do justice, and share the gospel generously. So as God's kingdom people, we ought to value the things that he values, right? Like, we, we, ought to, we, we have to be intentional about valuing what he values, and he shows us. He shows us exactly what he values in the very first book of the entire Bible, right? Genesis. Genesis 1, God takes his imprint, takes his image, and puts it on every single person. It says, you have value, which shows what God values, right? Like, this, this is why kingdom worship loves selflessly, because it shows God's value. God's value is his image. He loves people, chapter 1 of the whole book. And so the next form, though, that he, that he articulates in kingdom worship also displays that same value, It's still others-focused, but it actually narrows in. It's not as broad as the other one. Let's look at it. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so the second marker of this kind of worship found in our text is kingdom worship honors marriage. So the author transitions with the word let us, right? So I want to just remind us in the room, uh, this is not a solo gig for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's a community affair, okay? So like we don't go worship alone, we don't do mission alone, and we certainly don't fight sin alone. There's always a sense of communal responsibility that's been put on the church. And so we, as the visible display of Christ, show Jesus by the way we honor and value marriage, this is a high value to God. It's right here. That, that word honor there means that it's precious. That's what that Greek word is, precious. And so therefore, it has to be precious to us. God's declaration over Adam, back in the first book again, chapter 2, declaration over Adam. He's, he's in paradise. He's got animals. He's got food. He's got work. He doesn't have any shame, any sin. And yet God says it's not good for man to be alone. And what did God give him? He didn't give him a job. He didn't give him a government. He didn't institute the first church. In fact, he didn't even institute the first family with kids for that matter. No, he instituted marriage. Marriage is a highly valued thing for God. 
And this does not simply mean, by the way, that we ought, as the church ought to honor marriage, so therefore married people do a good job at being married. Like, this is also for our single folks, too. Okay? So let me address the single folks first. I want to address you first. Uh, let me address you by saying marriage is not the goal. Jesus is. And if, that's, and if that's the case, how does a person happen to honor marriage if Jesus is the goal in that? So I got, I got three things for you, okay? Three things. One, embrace your singleness, which sounds so contradictory, right? Like, what do you, honor marriage by embracing your singleness. But, but here's the thing. It's a huge concept for us. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul actually outlines what that looks like and what that means. And, and here's what he basically outlines. It says that you, as a single person, that's not your identity. Your relationship status doesn't define who you are. And let me say this real quick. I'm sorry that we as the church may have made you believe that by all of our questions of your relationship status rather than how you're doing in your walk with Christ and how your family might be doing. I'm sorry for that. But here's the deal. It's not who you are. Singleness is a circumstance by which God gets your undivided attention for your good and his glory. That's what singleness is. So being single isn't the problem to be fixed. In fact, you're a, it's a gift from God. You as a single person, you are a gift. You, you have more availability, more margin, and more opportunity to serve God wholeheartedly than anybody else in the family of God. Two, don't do married stuff. God has reserved marriage sexual behavior for the covenant marriage bed. Meaning, sex is good, but in the context of marriage. At the end of verse 4, it says that God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous. So that means every single sexual act outside of marriage, but then adultery in marriage, is sin against a holy God. So that means adultery can be done both in marriage, but then also outside of marriage in potential marriage. Does that make sense? That means you're still committing adultery even if you're not married right now if you're engaging in those activities. Three, be a friend of marrieds. Be a friend of married people. Encourage them to see the best in their partner. Honor their marriage by being their friend and looking for opportunities to serve them. Intrude on their life, right? I know that sounds weird, right? But think about it. Married people have less margin and time. They're juggling not only those two schedules. If they have kids, they're scheduling even more uh, uh, schedules at that point. Like I, I manage six schedules at this point, right? Like that's, that's a reality of my life. And so sometimes if you don't force your way into a married couple's life, you won't be in it, right? And let me say this real quick. Don't be crazy, okay? Like don't be weird, but, but intrude on their life. Look for ways to be a part of their life, amen? All right, uh, married folks, our marriages ought to be an exemplary example of Jesus, not only for the body of Christ, but the life out there. And here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that you put on a mask on Sunday, you put on a mask in front of people to say that everything's perfectly fine in my marriage. That's not what I mean. It means that we fight it out with our spouse to resolve conflict. It means that getting counseling before it gets rough, before it gets rough in your marriage. Yes, I said counseling, by the way. It's a very good thing. Like, think about it. Anyone who's a responsible car owner regularly takes their car in for an oil change, right? Like, that's just regular maintenance to make sure that it maintains, right? That, that's what you do if you're responsible for that. So how much more for marriage will we have regular and faithful checkups? 
right? Like, because we don't want marriage just to be this thing that's okay. We want it to thrive. And so why wouldn't you take that time at least once a year to say, hey, let's go on a marriage retreat, counseling with a counselor, or let's go to a marriage conference, let's read a book, whatever it might be, thrive in that marriage, not just letting it be okay. Number two, the other one is also means to intentionally pursue a growing affection for your spouse and not getting bogged down by your job, your kids, or your circumstances. You see, you want to you be the best you can at your job and kill it at being a spouse. If, if you want to be a rock star as a parent, it, it, then, then show your kids what it looks like to have a thriving, healthy, intimate marriage and what that looks like. Show them that. Kill it at being a spouse. You, you want to you wade the storms of life and the circumstances that come with that? Well, first of all, cling close to Jesus, but secondly, cling close to your spouse. See, God said it is not good for man to be alone. He was already with Adam in the garden, and he didn't make for him a kid. He didn't point him to his job. He didn't give him uh, special responsibilities. No, he gave him a spouse to work, to, to do life, to multiply children, all to the glory of God with him. And so I think we spend so much time being concerned with how the outside world deals with marriage and sexuality and not enough in the house of God. You see, we get so caught up with people who don't bow their knee to Jesus and how they're handling something that God's instituted, so much so that we haven't stopped to see first where God would have us value marriage. And as much of the fighting and the toiling that we have done in the United States Church specifically over this issue, we find ourselves in a similar place as the worst of the world. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and and the church. You see, the church is Christ's bride, right? Like the greatest gift that Jesus gave to his bride was giving his own life. You see, that was the gift. And it was also the example for us of what marriage looks like, right? It's to reflect the gospel. Marriage is is so highly valued by God that he took his good news and said, hey, I'm going to spill it on you for the redemption of your sins. But not only that, it's going to serve as an example for what marriage looks like, dying, It's a constant dying to bring life and love to the other person. You see that? See, we're compelled by the grace that we've received through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins to honor marriage in our worship to God. And we're empowered by this beautiful gospel. And then as followers of Jesus, the the response in worship to God isn't just in these two two areas of loving the church, loving the neighbor, and and, and honoring marriage, but it should permeate every single aspect of our life. Look with me in verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So kingdom worship holds money loosely. That's the third place that we see it. Uh, the author doesn't, doesn't say keep yourself from money, by the way. He doesn't say get rid of money. We don't, money's bad, right? He doesn't say that. In fact, he just says keep away from the love of money because money can be a good thing. Like we should work and we should work hard to gain money. That's not a bad thing. But he says to keep ourselves from the love of it because money is a good thing because, I mean, that could be the way God provides for your family, right? That's not a bad thing that God would provide. It's, a, it's the means by which a lot of times God sends people all over the world to share the gospel. That's a means by which God would actually have this church continue to reach our city is through finances. Like, there's a, it's a big place there. But here, here's where it, it comes, becomes a problem is when we start to love it, it becomes very detrimental. 
You see, money is, is a very alluring thing because it, it can provide power and security. In this life, in the physical, it can give you power, it can give you security. And so, and there's plenty of evidence to that, right? Like people who have lots of money, they have power and they have at least physical security in that way. However, the love of money with its allure and its power and its security, it also will never satisfy too. If we give in to this love, it, it will never be enough. It's an intoxicating relationship that is never ending and always leaves you wanting more. See, money can leave you, and it will leave you, and it will forsake you long-term. It becomes a horrible God in our life. And so the ultimate, ultimately loving money comes from a, a deeper issue for us, though. It's the issue of, of trust and contentment. You see, within contentment, what we do is we buy this lie that if we have just a little bit more, then we'll be satisfied. Or if I just upgrade a little bit, just enough, so that my neighbor might see that I'm cool, then I'll be okay. And see, this lie... It is bred out of this fear, uh, which leaves us vulnerable to this reality, that, that all of a sudden money isn't something that's a tool to be used in order to serve Christ, but instead it now is our master. We serve it. And then we, 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 we mishandle definitions of words of need and want, don't we? Like, I Googled it. I was like, all right, what does need mean? How do you define that term? Here's how Google defines it. Circumstances in which something is necessary or that requires some course of action, necessity. The basic human need for food is the example that it gives. Synonyms for this is necessity, obligation, requirement, demand. You see the urgency in that word need when we use it? It's I have to have it. That's what need means. And it's just a huge difference between need and want, right? But how many times in a week, a month, a year do we use the word need when we really mean want? We got to kill that. You see, with the love of money, we buy things that we can't afford with money that we don't actually have to basically show off or impress people that we really don't like anyway, right? Like, that's how that plays out. And so money can either work for us in loving Jesus and adoring Jesus, or we can serve it. So I don't know where you are financially. Maybe, 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 maybe some of us have plenty, Maybe some of us don't have all that much, or maybe some of us have a lot, but we don't really realize it. There is some of that. But either way, God desires more of us. He desires us to find our contentment in him and not our finances, that we would be satisfied in him continually and grow in our trust toward him to provide the security that we desire, to provide what we need in him. The end of verse 5 and 6 tells us where this contentment comes from when we look to Jesus and, and, and why we ought to trust him as well. Look at, at the last verses there. It says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, our, our master Jesus gives us this wonderful promise that he says, I will not leave you and I will not cast you aside. He's here to help. Isn't that beautiful for us? That's a promise. There's nothing that can get in his way of loving us the way he does. Money comes and goes, but Jesus will be, all, be here for all of eternity. See, the love of money, again, makes a horrible God because it's not neutral, right? It's either a master or it's a servant. It doesn't play on neutral grounds at all. So we can either be mastered by Jesus and have our finances serve him, or we are mastered by our finances, our trust, our faith in Jesus ought to remove our affections from the tangible world, the finances, 
and be put in the proper place of worshiping Jesus, having our affections turn to Jesus. You see, true contentment comes from the realization that Jesus is with us, he's for us, he's on our side. And I mean, think about it. If death couldn't hold him back, what kind of uh, life circumstance is going to overcome or overwhelm us that he can't handle? You see, at some point, everything in our life will be taken away at some point. Everything in our life eventually will be gone. And so we're left with one question. One question. Today, who will you worship? Who will you worship? What kingdom will you be a part of? You see, Jesus' kingdom is made available to all people. So if you're in the room and, and you don't follow Jesus currently, man, I'm happy that you're here. Like this, this message we see in Hebrews is a glimpse into what followers of Jesus ought to look like. And this is also a glimpse into saying this is what Jesus is working on the church, the body of Christ, to look like. Now, we are not doing this perfectly, by the way. However, Jesus is working in and through us, and we're striving toward that, striving toward the example of Christ and how he lived here on earth. And that example is the fact that Jesus came, dwelt among humans as God, and not only that, he lived the life that no human can by perfectly loving, perfectly being just, and perfectly being holy. And then he died on the cross by sacrificing his own life in love, but he sacrificed his own life on the cross for our sins, yours and mine. And he did all of that, not only so that we might take on his attributes, but so that we might have a relationship with him. And so if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, man, I would encourage you, today would be that day. He's offering not only heaven to you, but he's offering that you get to be a part of a grander family, you get to be a part of a grander kingdom, and most importantly, you get to be a part of his family. You get to be with him for all of eternity. Would you do that? Now, City Light... As Jesus' kingdom people responding to his gospel in worship, may we, may we not earn God's love, but may we be driven by it. May we be driven by it so, that, so much so that it, it allows us to love one another and love our neighbors as ourselves, both in word and deed. Let us hold marriage in high honor because God holds marriage in high honor. And, and let us be, hold loosely the finances that he so graciously provides for us so that we might invest it in kingdom things and the things that last for all of eternity. And see, we do all of that. We do all of that so that we might see our king do some wonderful things in our midst, right? We do all of that so we might see other people become a part of that same kingdom that, that we're a part of. And just to display and to flex a little bit by God's grace, he's going to flex today. We're going to get the opportunity to see, uh, hear a testimony from my sister Cora. She's going to come up right after I'm done. And then we're going to see some folks get baptized, signifying the fact that Jesus is king and he is saving people to his kingdom in and through his, his grace. Amen? Let's pray.